Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Um, as Scott said, this is obviously uh, Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to the ladies. You guys aren't very excited about that. Okay, yeah, we should give the ladies a hand. And as he stated, it's not just that you are uh, a mom biologically, but also spiritually. Spiritual moms are just as important, and so we honor the moms this weekend. And uh, I want to share with you some statements here, what God, why God made moms, answers given by elementary school age children to the following questions. Here we go. Buckle your seatbelt. I thought these were a lot of fun and uh, humorous and had a little meaning behind some of what they said. Why did God make mothers? Here's uh, some answers. Elementary school children. She's the only one who knows where the scotch tape is. That's deep, okay? And here's another one, mostly to clean the house. Hey, push me just a little bit more if you would, Mike. Here's the third one, to keep us out of there, or I'm sorry, to help us out of there when we were getting born. Did you guys get that? Okay. What ingredients are mothers made of? God makes mothers out of clouds and angel hair and everything nice in the world in one dab of mean. <laughs> yeah, that's good, that's good. Why did mom give you your mother and not some other mom? God knew she likes me a lot more than other people's moms like me. <laughs> what kind of little girl was your mom? What kind of little girl was your mom? I don't know because I wasn't there, but my guess would be pretty bossy. <laughs> yeah? Why did your mom marry your dad? My grandma says that mom didn't have her thinking cap on. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. What's the difference between moms and dads? I like this. Uh, moms work at work and work at home. You know where this one's going. Dads just go to work at work. That's, that's harsh. Probably true, though. Moms know how to talk to teachers without scaring them. Dads are taller and stronger, but moms have all the real power because that's who you got to ask if you want to sleep over at your friends. Moms have magic. They make you feel better without medicine. That's sweet. What does your mom do in her spare time? Mothers don't do spare time. <laughs> what would it take to make your mom perfect? On the inside, she's already perfect. Outside, I think some kind of plastic surgery. Then, a, then someone else, some other little elementary age child said, what would make your mom perfect? And uh, what, is, what was the question there? What would it take to make your mom perfect? Diet. You know, her hair. I diet maybe blue. <laughs> Here's the last two. If you could change one thing about your mom, what would it be? She has this weird thing about keeping my room clean. I'd get rid of that. Or here's the last one. I would like for her to get rid of those invisible eyes on her back. 
Good stuff. So we're in the middle of a teaching series, Recovering Awe, talking about contentment this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll look at that whole chapter, verses 1 through 12. In the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow, played by Johnny Depp, says something quite profound when they discover the treasure. Remember in that cave? He says this, not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. Pretty profound. Turn and say that to the people sitting around you. Not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. Can you do that real quick? Not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. We live in a society that defines wealth as how much money you make, what neighborhood you live in, how big your house is, what kind of car you drive. But not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. There is treasure that money can't buy. I want you to, let's have a little more congregational participation here this morning. And I I want you to finish these sentences out loud to me. Money can buy a house, but not a a home. Good. Money can buy a bed, but not... I kind of stumped you on that one. I did that all three services. Yeah, rest, sleep. I think I heard it over here, rest or sleep. Money can buy a clock, but not much time. Good. Money can buy sex, but not... Some of you are looking at me kind of weird on that one, huh? Kind of like, what is he going to... Where is he going with that one? Yeah, but not true love. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy books, but not... Knowledge, brains, wisdom. Money can buy entertainment, but not not contentment. Not contentment. Money can buy religion, but not what? But faith, relationship with God, salvation. Money can buy a passport to anywhere, but not to, to heaven. Take a look at your sermon notes. Important quote from Randy Alcorn from his book, Happiness. When our contentment is in Christ... It's as durable as he is dependable. How dependable is Jesus? Really, really, really dependable. Unbelievable how dependable he is. And when our contentment is in Christ, it's as durable as he is dependable. When our happiness is in Christ, we can't lose our happiness because we can't lose Christ. Do you believe that? I'm convinced of that. I don't always live in the middle of that. How about you? Do you live there? I want to live more and more there, and so we're going to learn how to do that in this message. You can see also Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Remember, uh, Paul was, he was chained to a Praetorian guard. He was in prison, not sure if he was going to lose his life. He says some pretty profound things about joy in that letter to the church in Philippi. But he also says some really great things about contentment. And in there... He says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Then he gives us the key to to that. How how did you do that, Paul? He says, because uh, I can do all things through who? Christ who strengthens me. And so here's here's a definition for contentment uh, this morning. Contentment is being so satisfied in Christ, so satisfied in Christ beyond 
what the best circumstances in life can give you or the worst circumstances in life can take away from you. Does that make sense? So, so, so there is a contentment in Christ. There's a contentment in Christ, a happiness, a joy, a deep joy that the best circumstances in life cannot give you that and the worst cannot take it away from you. I want that. I want more of that in my life. I'm sure you want more of that also in your life. I, sh- I shared with you last week in the part of our text, as we talked about money, five biblical principles of wise financial management. We talked about that during our reboot series when we talked about our finances. Remember the five biblical principles, budget, accounting, self-control, true wealth, or contentment and generosity. If you're going to have self-control in our culture, especially in our culture, to keep you from impulsive compulsive spending habits, because we are so consumed with capitalism, commercialism, and consumerism, you need to know true wealth. You need to know contentment. And that's what this study is about. So I'm going to give you six statements about contentment, what contentment is, and I hope that as we study these statements from Ecclesiastes, that they'll really be driven deep into your heart. And each of these statements get a little bit more difficult. They start off kind of somewhat easy, not real easy, but then they get much more difficult as we work through these statements, and so that's where we're going. You can also see that we'll read a few verses, and then we'll talk about it, read a few verses and talk about it, and we'll have some fill in the blanks there. So that's where we're going. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are delighted to be here today. Father God, we know that everyone wants contentment, but very few find it. The billion-dollar ad industry preys on our lack of it. Poor men are rich with it, rich men are poor without it, and it can only ultimately be found in you. Our hearts are forever, forever restless until we find our rest in you. Only you, only you, Father, through your Son, Jesus, and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, only you can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Help us to learn this contentment that is found in a relationship with Christ Jesus that the best circumstances in life can't give us and the worst circumstances in life can't take away from us. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Amen. So contentment is Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. I mean, that's something we all would like to have. This guy lacks nothing that he desires, yet, here's the key phrase, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. Here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. Contentment is enjoying what God has given you. It is enjoying what God has has given you. Remember our study last week, well, two weeks ago we talked about worship, subscribing ultimate worth and value to God, finding your deepest satisfaction in Him, and then he moved into money. We talked about money, and at the end of the study on money, we talked about how the power of money, when it gets a hold of you, the way that you break that power, the power is broken when we realize, and there were three things we talked about, but let me summarize those three things here. They're found in Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 19. The power of money is broken when we realize that created pleasures, created pleasures, our ability to get and enjoy money or anything else, are gifts from God, are gifts from God, and ultimately pointers to God, our greatest treasure and pleasure. 
You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? So all the things that we have in life, all the stuff, all the money is given to us by God as gifts from God meant to point us back to God, life's greatest pleasure and treasure. But when money or anything else becomes our identity or our ultimate treasure and pleasure rather than God, then success, however much money it is, or whatever we define as, as our meaning in life other than God, uh, success will go to our head, it will inflate us, and failure will go to our heart, it will deflate us. We talked a lot about that last week. That's why it tells us in 1 Timothy 6.17, don't set your hope your identity and ultimate pleasure on the uncertainty of riches or anything else, but on God, notice what it says here, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's the source. It's meant to point our hearts back to him. And I'm, I'm convinced of this. I believe that people who know the creator personally are going to enjoy the things of creation much more than those that don't know the creator. Would you agree with that? I, I'm convinced of that. The Bible makes it very clear about that. And he gives us the ability to enjoy the things of life, uh, even more so than those that don't know him because we know they come from his hand. And so, so what we do as believers is that, in fact, let me just say this, to enjoy the gifts more than the giver or without the giver is idolatry. We know that. But to enjoy the giver through the gifts can be soul-satisfying worship. So, so we don't let our, our joy terminate on the created things that we have in our life. We let it roll on up to God, our creator, it becomes an opportunity to find deep satisfaction in him. It becomes opportunity for gratitude and adoration in him as we enjoy the things that he's given to us and as long as we continue to enjoy those in keeping with his directives in his word. Now, let me define for you just to help you to understand this idea of discontentment because it's, it's rampant in our culture today because we're trying to find our contentment in created things as opposed to the creator. But discontentment believes the lie that God is holding out on you. That's the essence of discontentment. You see it in Genesis 3. Remember Adam and Eve? They encountered uh, this serpent and the serpent began to work on them and undermine God's credibility, his character and his commandments, getting them to doubt uh, satisfaction in God, finding joy in God. And so that's what's interesting. So discontentment believes the lie that God is holding out on you. Discontentment is what made even the Garden of Eden feel like it was not enough. Isn't that crazy? They were in the Garden of Eden. They were walking with God in the cool of the day. And, and, and they were discontent because they believed the lie. So we can fall prey to that. If we believe the lie that somehow God is not enough. That's the essence of sin, by the way. You know that. The essence of sin is believing somehow that God is, is not enough. I can find it out here somewhere. 
I can find it in my career. I can find it in a relationship. I can find it somewhere out there. Now, those are all gifts from God, but ultimately meant to point us back to God where we find our deepest satisfaction and fulfillment. And otherwise, when we do that, those things no longer have that control over our lives like oftentimes we give them control. So discontentment happens when we are not satisfied with Christ. Discontentment then produces jealousy and envy and self-pity and entitlement, draining all the joy out of our life, making it impossible to enjoy what we have. We should be the happiest people in the world with what we have here in America, but, but we're not. We're really a discontented group of people. Now, here's what's interesting. There's an article that I read. It was actually from, um, what's the name of that website? Gotquestions.org. It's a good website. Just use your discretion, you know, and go take it back to the scriptures when you punch in something there. I punched in contentment. This is what they said. This is just an excerpt from it. It says, the latest global statistic shows that if one has a roof over his head and a meal on his table, he is richer than 93% of the world's population. 93% of the world's population. You have what I just said? Yeah, that we all do right here. We are richer than 93% of the world's population. We're so totally out of touch with what's going on around the world, aren't we? We're just kind of just wrapped up in our own little world. If a person wears a pair of shoes, he is richer than 75% of the people in the world. In the United States alone, credit card debt. And remember what we talked about credit card debt. Debt is just evidence that we're not satisfied. That's why we get ourselves into debt because we think that we believe the lie from our culture that happiness is one purchase away. We're dogged by a billion dollar industry that tells us that. And so in the United States alone, credit card debt averages more than $16,000 per household and we are still discontented. Credit card debt would be that plague debt as opposed to tool debt. We made, we made that distinction last week. And then he quotes here, the writer here, Ecclesiastes 5.10, which was one of our verses last week. Solomon, the wisest and richest man who ever lived, said, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 5.10. And so there's something in our lives that can begin to rob us of enjoying the things that we have. And yet contentment is enjoying what God has, has given you and, and letting that roll on up to the creator in gratitude and adoration to him. But here's the next one. Now, they're going to get a little bit harder as we work through this. Verses 3 through 5. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. That, that's a key phrase right there. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he even though he should live a thousand years twice over, 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Here's, here's what he's saying here. By the way, when you're reading poetry, poetry is, you can't just skim through it. It takes a lot of time. You have to reflect on it, think about it. I did that for you, okay? Just so that you know. And so what I'm telling you is just after much reflection and study, here's what he's saying here. Solomon is using hyperbole to make his point. There are two things that indicated God's blessing in Judaism. And he, he mentions that right here in the text. The, f the first thing is a long life. 
That's found in verse 6. He actually says it in verse 3 too, but he elaborates on it in verse 6. A thousand years twice over. If you live to be, you know, 2,000 years old is what he's saying. And then the second thing that indicated God's blessing in Judaism is a large family. And in verse 3 he says, how many kids? A hundred kids. If he had a hundred kids, you lived 2,000 years that's what he's saying. That's the point. But notice, tucked away there in verse 3, he says, and he also has no burial. That's the key. For a Jewish person not to have a well-attended and honorable funeral at the end of his life was a great sign of disrespect and failure, worse than being a stillborn child. That's what he's saying in verses 3 through five. So here's your next fill in the blank. So contentment is having a positive impact on people's lives. That's, that's the point. And we need to talk about that because uh, we need to elaborate on that a little bit. So let me ask you this. Have you ever stopped to ponder who might be at your funeral? You are going to die. Just a matter of time. I've done a lot of funerals here. Our staff all of us together have done a lot of funerals. Have you ever stopped to ponder who might be at your funeral and what they might say at your funeral? I know it's a bit morbid, but it can be very clarifying. And that's basically the question Solomon is asking. I mean, it's, it's kind of tucked away there. He also has no bear. I mean, his hundred kids don't even show up to this guy's funeral. They don't give a rip about him. That's, that's a little bit of what's implied here. I'll never forget the memorial service that I did. I was a young pastor, kind of getting used to this. People invited me out. Grandpa had died. I came to the house, and uh, it was packed full. I was frightened. I was like, oh, this is kind of one of my early memorial services, early funerals. And so I open up the Bible. Everybody kind of gathers around, open up the Bible, tell them the gospel, talk to them, and try to console them. They seemed totally indifferent about anything I said. I opened it up and said, hey, would anybody like to share anything about the legacy that Grandpa had on your life? No one shared a thing. Just silence. And I was like kind of stunned, so I just, okay. And I said, I know sometimes it's hard to speak in front of, you know, you try to make up excuses and things like that. And, and so I said some nice things trying to sort through that. And I prayed, and then as I was walking out to the car, the guy said to me, he was walking out there with me, he said, we're glad the SOB is gone. And I, it just, it took me off guard. I was like, oh my goodness. I, I, and then I looked back and I said, yeah, I could tell that. I could see that. They were, and, and they were just waiting for me to leave so they could go pop. <laughs> so they could get drunk and celebrate his death rather than his life. So let me ask you these questions. And, and by the way, what, really, what I learned is that selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered people are typically lonely people. What kind of person are you to be around? What kind of impact are you having on people's lives? Are people happy when they see you coming or when they see you going? What do you guys think? Boy, am I glad they finally left. They're about to kill me. I was going to kill him if he didn't hurry up and get out of here. I mean, what, what, what kind of an impact are you having on people's lives? 
Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 kind of gives us the environment that we should have in our lives, kind of characterizes the kind of impact that we can have on people's lives. It says, we, we studied this a few weeks back on relationships, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him in a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Does that characterize your relationships with others? That should, and of course you can't have impact without some sort of contact and the level of relationship should be characterized in those verses. I also like what it says in Philippians 1.25. That's the context where, where Paul is, hand, uh, he's, I want to say handcuffed, but he's actually, he's chained to a Praetorian guard and it's, the book's filled with joy and he's struggling back and forth. He's not sure if he's going to die or not, but then he realizes he probably won't die and he says, I'm, I'm struggling between these two. I'm torn between these two, whether or not to go and be with the Lord or uh, if I'm going to stay here, God's going to allow me to stay here so that I can minister to you folks. But I'm torn between the two. And that's where he says very profoundly, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But as he's struggling through all of this, of course he says, man, it, it would be great to go and be with the Lord. But in verse 25 he says, convinced of this, convinced that I will, I'm going to continue on here in ministry, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And, and he hits the nail on the head of the impact that he's wanting to make in people's lives and also it should be the impact that we want to make in people's lives. He says, so I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. Is that when people hang out with you, would they say that you help them to progress and have more and more joy in the faith? I mean, that, that would be a great question. That's, that's the influence. That would be a life of, that's having an impact on others. So contentment is having a positive impact on people's lives. The gospel makes you others directed, and that's what we see in Paul's life, because you already have your treasure in Christ and therefore want others to experience it too. There's such contentment found in Christ that all you're thinking when you're with others is like, man, how can I help them? How can I help them to progress and find joy in their faith? Let me ask you this. What would be the greatest threat to your impact in other people's lives? What's the greatest threat? I'll answer that for you, okay? It's your lack of joy in Jesus. That's the greatest threat to your impact in other people's lives. Your joy, your lack of joy in Christ. Let me tell you something. The longer you walk with Christ, the more you get to know him, it ought to get bigger, not smaller. There should be something in your life that it begins to just, it takes hold of your life unlike ever before. That would be healthy Christianity. And as your heart is filled up more and more with the joy of Christ, and that's going to overflow in other people's lives. And so you're going to want that for them. All the love you need, you have in Christ, freeing you 
freeing you to love people who even hate you without needing love or anything from them in return. It's pretty amazing when we begin to understand the kind of love that he gives us. People overtaken by Christ's love are more restful and less resentful. They're more consoling and less controlling. They're more merciful. They're less... They're less mercenary. They're more worshipful and less worrisome. Here's, here's what I'm going to ask you this question. This gives you a chance to kind of wake up. If you're trying to fall asleep on me, don't dare do that, okay? But ask the person next to you this question. See if they know the answer to this question. What's the main difference between Christians and non-Christians? What's the main difference? You need to know this. Real quick, ask the person next to you. See if they know the answer to that. Okay, here's, let me give you the answer. See if, see if your answer is close to mine, okay? The main difference between Christians and non-Christians is right here. It's a relationship with God. Anybody get that? Did you guys get that? It's a relationship with God. Listen to me. It's a relationship with God. Oh, by the way, that relationship, a relationship involves what? It involves communion. It involves communication. It involves interaction. It involves friendship. It involves love and truth, mutually given and received. So are you doing that with God? Do you have a relationship with him? Because that is what separates Christians from non-Christians. I was talking to my wife this last week. We were headed to, to go work out. And I asked her this. What kind of a relationship would we have if all I did was come to you and give you a list of to-dos? And she go, she said, not very good. Not a good relationship at all. And, and we begin to talk about that. So imagine if my prayer life only consisted of me coming to God and giving him a to-do list. Or maybe if I had a friend and I called him up on the phone and every day I just gave him this to-do list. Here, I want you to do this, do this, do this. And then I hung up on him before he could even respond back to me. You see, hearing God is not something that you do. It's who you are. And when you interact with the Creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. There is nothing like it. This is what separates Christians from non-Christians. We have a relationship with the living God, and he speaks to us, and he loves on us, and we can enjoy him. And out of that communion with him, it produces this joy that is beyond our wildest dreams. Even as Peter was writing to second-generation Christians in 1 Peter 1.8, he says, though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy why was he able to say that he was just saying that as a matter of fact because I know you have this in your relationship it's indescribable and indestructible joy that overflows your life because you are interacting with the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth let me tell you something folks that's the best thing about the Christian life that's my favorite thing to do I can't pastor I can't even function unless I'm spending time regularly interacting with my creator who loves me and adores me and gave his life for me 
Oh my goodness, there's just, there's something, something about that that just overwhelms me. Ecclesiastes 5.20, it's, it's one of my favorite verses now, is what we finished the message up with last week. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Why? Why? Where does that joy come from? Well, uh, Psalm, Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. There's nothing in creation that can give you the joy and the pleasures that only the creator can give you. It's amazing. And so when you begin to fill your heart up on that, then your life is going to naturally be contagious to those around you. And, and that's, that would be the most important thing you could do each and every day is to keep your heart filled up with the joy of Christ and just spend time with him and know him and experience him. Okay, now, okay, okay we could spend a whole, a whole lot of time just on that, but it's going to get more difficult because this is going to really tell me whether or not you really have that intimate relationship with him and you're experiencing that joy. Because look at verses 7 through 9. All the toil of a man is for his mouth... Now keep in mind, this is kind of poetry, so you have to really work on that and reflect on it and think about it. All of the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? That's a rhetorical question. We'll come back to that in a moment. Here's the key phrase, though, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes, better to, to live in touch with reality than the wandering of the appetite, always daydreaming about something better. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So what he's saying here is, so let me paraphrase verse 7. He's saying, hard work can put food on the table, clothes on your back, and a roof over your head, but no matter how nice they are, they can never satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's verse 7. Verse 8, he says, there are things you can do to enhance your life. He's speaking rhetorically, education and relational skills. But then in verse 9, he says, it is better to enjoy who you are and what you have. See, that's the sight of eyes, living in touch with reality, rather than always wishing you were someone else with a whole lot more. That's the wandering of the appetite. So we can, here's another definition, another definition for contentment. So contentment is being satisfied with who you are, what you have, and where you're going. Let me give you the next fill in the blank. So, so contentment is being satisfied with the lot God has given me in life. I told you they're going to get a little bit more difficult as we work through this. It's being satisfied with the lot that God has given me. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever wished, have you, ever wished you had more hair? I've never wished that. I've never wished that. When I found out that uh, grass doesn't grow on a busy street, hey, you know, and uh, when I realized that God only made a few perfect heads and he put hair on the rest, and, and I've got a hundred more of those comebacks, okay? And uh, I can see that you're not too, uh, too excited about any of those, but, uh, but have you ever wished you had more hair or less hair? Have you ever wished you were taller or shorter or thinner or thicker or smarter or more talented or born into a different family or lived in a different era. Contentment is being comfortable in my own skin. Listen to these profound words found in Psalm 139, 13 through 16. If you ever get a chance to just sit down and reflect on this psalm, it's a wonderful psalm. Listen to what the psalmist says in these three verses. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Does this sound like somebody that's, 
comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, no doubt about it. Contentment is being comfortable in your own skin. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to what he says in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet, when as yet there was none of them. So here's, here's some quick points that helps us to understand what this means. Being satisfied with the lot that God has given me. You are not an accident. Based on what that says here, you are not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. And uh, there may be illegitimate parents, but there are no illegitimate children. No illegitimate children. And not only that, it also tells us that God decided, as you continue reading in that you begin to see that God decides the exact time of your birth, how long you're going to live, and he knows the exact time of your death. He knows when you're going to die. It also is telling us here that you are God's handcrafted work of art. You're not an assembly line product, mass-produced, without thought. You are a custom-designed, one-of-a-kind, original masterpiece. And no one on earth will ever be able to play the role God has planned for you. If you don't make your unique contribution to the body of Christ, it won't be made. So when we become discontented with the skin we're in, this disdains our creator and despises what he created. But not only is contentment being comfortable in my, my own skin, but it's also being... Uh, Contentment is being comfortable. It's, it's also being comfortable with how he's created us. Contentment is being comfortable with God writing the script of your life. Not just in how he's, he's created us, but also how he, he writes our script for our life. You're probably familiar with the story of Job, where he, I mean, this dude was loaded, had a lot of wealth, and yet he lost everything. But this is how he responds. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and had a nervous breakdown. No, that's not what it says. I mean, I mean, you would think that he was having a nervous breakdown. If you were just to watch him, and yet the Bible says, and he worshiped God. What does that say? Job was totally in touch with the reality of the suffering, and yet he was, he was embracing something that transcended his, his suffering, and that was God in the midst of that. And this is what he says. And he said, naked... I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So he, he's, he's defining for us what trust is. So here's trust. Trust is accepting what God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. So that's Trust. And that's part of contentment. I, I'm just trusting you. I don't understand why this came into my life, but I'm, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. So now listen up. If you're starting to fall asleep here, wake up, okay? Because this is really important. This is really important because I see a lot of people defect from the faith over this, what I'm about to say to you. When we say to God, I'll serve you only if X happens then it is X that we love and God is just a necessary means for obtaining it. Tracking with me? 
Every difficult circumstance, every difficult circumstance is revealing whether or not you came to God to get him to serve you or so that you could serve God. If you love the good things you hope to get from God more than you love God, then you'll defect from God in suffering. If your obedience to God is not a way of pleasing God, but rather a means of getting God to please you, then you'll defect from God in suffering. If you say, I've heard many people say this, I believed in God, I trusted God, and he didn't come through. You only trusted God to meet your agenda. We get angry when we feel God owes us a better life than what we have People defect from the faith for two reasons. One is that they become deceived by the pleasures of life. They actually believe that they're going to find greater satisfaction in life pursuing creation over and above the creator. And the second, second way is that they become disillusioned by the pressures of life, the difficulties of life. And contentment in Christ will keep us from being deceived and disillusioned. And now we move on much deeper into this and it's going to become more convicting and more compelling and much more difficult. Look at verses 10 and 11 because it's going to talk about God's sovereignty. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about God. You can't argue with God. You can't out-arm wrestle God. And then in verse 11, he says, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Here's the next point in your notes. So contentment is accepting the fact that God is God and I'm not. They're getting more hard, more difficult. So contentment is accepting the fact that God is God and I'm not. In the movie Rudy, anybody remember seeing the movie Rudy? Or did you see the movie Rudy? Maybe I should ask that question. Yeah, it's a great movie. Not very many people. Rudy? Okay, okay. And so there's a scene in the movie, Rudy, obviously, a young man who wants to be accepted at Notre Dame. He goes to the priest to see if this priest can pull some strings for him. Classic scene. I love what the priest says. The priest says, son, in 35 years of religious study, I have only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. That's dead on. That's right on. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility is certainly a mystery. But here's some things that you need to keep in mind as it relates to God's sovereignty. Because God is sovereign, my plans have a limit. My plans have a limit. Proverbs 21, 30 through 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And then it goes on, it says, the, the horse is made ready for battle. So it's saying, hey, be responsible. But victory is in the hands of the Lord. In other words, God's ultimately decisive. Be responsible, but ultimately God ultimately decides. So because God is sovereign, my plans have a limit. But here's the next point as it relates to God's sovereignty. Because God is sovereign, my problems have a purpose. My problems have a purpose. Why don't you, you kind of write that down if, you, if you're writing that down? Everybody look up here just for a minute. I know that some of you are going through some really terrible difficulty, pain, suffering, all kinds of things that are happening in your life, and I'm telling you here, based on the authority of God's word, it has a purpose. It's not random and out of control, something that just all of a sudden creeped into your life. God is in control, and because he's sovereign, my problems have a purpose. My difficulties have a purpose. 
You need to hang on to that. I gave you some verses there that we talk about a lot here. In fact, we sang the song, Romans 8, 28. Remember the song we sang? He's going to work all things for our good and his glory. Do you believe that? That will change the way you're responding to the circumstances, to the difficult circumstances of your life. But here's the third thing. So because God is sovereign, my plans have a limit. Because God is sovereign, my problems have a purpose. But because God is sovereign, my prayers have an impact. My prayers have an impact. James 4.2 says we have not because we what? Because we ask not. It also tells us in James 5.16, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. But, but, to keep you from becoming fatalistic, because the tendency, when you start pushing the sovereignty of God to an extreme, you become fatalistic. Fatalism is just like, what's the use? What's the use? God's going to decide anyway. What's the use? That's fatalism. To keep you from going to fatalism, or if you push the extreme on your responsibility, you're going to get freaked out. But how do you find the balance between fatalism and being freaked out? You've got to add to that attribute, the sovereignty of God, two more attributes to balance your life out. And here they are. It's this, that God is perfect in love and he's infinite in wisdom. And so this is how it works in our lives, that as we face difficulties, we must believe That in God's love, he wants what is best for us. In his wisdom, he knows what is best for us. And in his sovereignty, he will do what is best for us. And you can take that to the bank. That's hard, isn't it? That's a hard one. Yeah, they're getting harder as we work through this. A creator owns you. A king rules you. God is a, is a creator and he's a king. But if that creator or king is your father, if he's your daddy, then all of his power is directed towards your best interest. Believe me, if you believe that, it will change how you respond to the negative circumstances of your life. And it takes us to the next fill in the blank. Here it is. Contentment is being okay with not having all my questions answered this side of eternity. So not only is contentment accepting the fact that God is God and I'm not, but being okay not having all my questions answered this side of eternity. Deuteronomy 29, 29, secret things belong to God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? Anybody? It's incalculable. Nobody knows. It keeps going on forever and ever and ever. And so it says it's making this contrast. It's wanting us to understand something as high as the heavens are above the earth. So high are God's thoughts and ways above our thoughts and ways. They're beyond us. There's a lot of things about God that are not going to make sense to us. That's what it's saying. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. They had mirrors unlike us today. I wish we had their kind of mirrors. They couldn't see very well. They were polished brass. And so that's why he says, we see in a mirror dimly. But then he goes on. This is powerful. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face. Face to face with who? Face to face with the one who loves you, adores you, gave his life for you. You will come face to face with him and you will know as you are fully known. That's amazing. There'll be that time when you step from time into eternity, take your last breath on earth, first breath in heaven, and you'll come face to face with your maker and you'll go, wow, I had no idea. That's amazing. That's what it's saying. I don't know why when I was 12 years old, my life was rocked with the loss of my grandfather. 
See, it was in the summers that my mom and dad would, because I struggled with asthma, my mom and dad would send me up to Flagstaff and my, dad, my grandpa would take me hunting and fishing. But I can remember it like it was yesterday when I heard about his death. It rocked me to the core of my being. I could tell you all that went on during that day. I had no concept of death and my grandfather was dead. And then a few years later, my grandmother died. And they were young. They were in their early 60s. I'm gonna turn 60 this year. They're just a couple years away from where I am right now. I don't know why they died. It rocked my life. I don't know why my, my cousins, uh, Rod and Steve, died in their 20s. I understand they probably contributed a little bit to that, but that shocked our family. It rocked our lives. I don't know why my, my wife and I, with our, our first pregnancy, she had a miscarriage. It rocked us. And I could, I could add to that list. I could add to that list of many things. I, I don't know why. But I thank God for how suffering has driven me like a nail deeper into his love. It is not the, the earthly pleasures, but the earthly pain that has showed me that his grace is more than enough. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Listen to me. Whatever you're going through, his grace is more. His empowering presence enabling you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do, is more. It's more than enough. His presence in your life, the joy that you have that's better than the best circumstances in life and no negative circumstances can ever take away from you. I've experienced that. I don't always live in the reality of it. I want to live more in that. See, You don't need to know the why if you know the who. We trust him not because we see his hand in our circumstances, but because we see his heart on the cross. We see his heart. Psalm 9, 9 through 10, it says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. So the remedy to our lack of faith and our maybe uh, fatalism or freaking out or, or whatever's going on in the midst of trauma and trials and temptations and difficulties is getting to know him, spend time with him, know who it is that's watching over you and loves you and is involved in your life and will take care of you. He loves you. He adores you. He cares for you. You don't need to know where you are going if you know the guide. I, I'll never forget this. My, I, was, I worked out at Palo Verde for four years. I was a pipe fitter welder out there. was riding to work with my dad out there, and he always liked to drive, and I liked it for him to drive because uh, this was before with the 101, and we'd have to take Cotton Lane out to I-10. It was about an hour and 20 minutes to get out there one way. So it was a hard drive out there, and so guess what I would do while dad drove? Sleep. Because I was a young married guy with a house full of kids, and so I needed all the sleep I could get. And so I would sleep out there, and uh, on the way out there, not out there, but on the way out there uh, with my dad. And I'll never forget this. It was one of these mornings where it was terrible monsoon rainstorm. It was really storming. We're on Cotton Lane, and he's going down, kind of navigating down Cotton Lane. I was sound asleep, and there's like a railroad track out there, and one of those railroad ties got washed out in the middle of the road, and uh, my dad didn't see it because the water was so high in the street that he ran over that, and boy, it startled me. It woke me up. 
just, wow, what was that, Dad? What was that, Dad? And he leaned over and touched me like that. He says, hey, it's okay. It's okay. And I went back to sleep. Because I, I trusted Dad. He's never fallen asleep. He would, I knew that he was going to get us to where we were going. And that's what some of you need this morning. You need, you need the Father just to lean over and touch you this morning. He's here this morning. In a few moments, we're going to take communion, and I pray that he would just reach over and touch you and say, listen, it's okay. You could have a touch of the Father's heart on your life. You begin to realize he's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. He's unlimited in his power. He's working in your life. He loves you. And you can trust his love. You can trust his love. See, if the gospel truly changes your heart, you don't ultimately care if life goes the way you want it to go as long as you have him, as long as you have him. Because when you have him, you have everything you need. See, the joys of acclaim and wealth and power are nothing compared to the eternal acclaim, wealth, and power that we have in him. Here's where we end it. Verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. He's, he's speaking rhetorically here. He's wanting us to think. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? These are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is here is, is contentment, is knowing the meaning of life and what will happen when we die. Colossians 1.16, Revelations 4.11 basically says we were created by God for God. Philippians 1.21, Paul summarizes the meaning of life for us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, he's just saying life's greatest treasure and pleasure is Jesus. He later on in that same letter to the church in Philippi says, Philippians 3.8, I paraphrase it here, everything is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Now, now everybody look up here just, just for a moment here. Whatever you give up, whatever you give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you gain in him. It's nothing compared to what you gain in him. And then he says, to die is gain. Basically, he's just saying life in glory, life in heaven with our Savior will be more than enough to heal all of our wounds and answer all of our questions. So to put it in the, in the words of the great theologian Jack Sparrow, <laughs> not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. Let's pray. Ecclesiastes 5.20, it says, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Lord, that's our desire. You keep us occupied with joy in our heart because we have your presence in our lives. And as it says in the hymn, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. And as we look full into his wonderful face through communion, we pray that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory in grace, in Jesus' name, amen.